you can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. And before we dive into God's Word together, um, I just want to make one uh, quick announcement um, about our service next week. I don't know if you've heard, but they are um, apparently releasing and removing some restrictions. That's good news, isn't it? Yeah, praise the Lord. Yeah. Um, and and uh, we're really excited about that, and I hope you are too. And, and here's what that means for us as a church. There's no more capacity restrictions. Um, no, no need for this. You see how you're spread out? You remember when it was normal to sit beside people that you didn't know? It was okay? Well, apparently we're going to be able to do that again next week. So here's what we're going to do, okay? This is good news. We are actually going to only have one service next week. And for those of you who are serving kids ministry, God bless you. There was a reward in heaven for you because you're going to miss. Sat, listen, we're not just going to do it. Hopefully we're going to do it more than one week so they'll get a chance. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. But, but listen, we want to pack this place out. One service, everybody in this church all together, and we are going to sing praises to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen. Okay, so here's, here's what you need to do. Make that a priority. Amen. Yeah, we need to make this a priority, okay? For those of you who are like, ah, you know what, the kids' nap times, scrap the nap times, okay? Suffer through it later that night. It's going to be worth it. It is going to be so good. Uh, so I, I mean that sincerely. Listen, invite your mother, invite your neighbor, invite, just grab some neighbor kids from the street, round them up. Don't do that. That's not a good idea. But bring people and I, I just, I'm so excited about, I think, what we're going to be able to experience next week. It's going to be a bit of a celebration, and uh, I think it's, it's worth celebrating. So I want to encourage you to make that a priority, be excited, and um, pray for those in the kids' ministry, um, not because of what they're going to miss, but because there's going to be a lot of kids in there, and, um, and they're going to need some extra strength. Well, we are closing out Romans chapter 12 today, and... Uh, I know some of you are eager to get to Romans chapter 13, and uh, um, one more week, okay? Just relax, but, but I want to I encourage you with something. I want to remind you of something. You've got to get through Romans 12 to get to Romans 13. I don't just mean that literally. I mean you've got to go through what the Word of God is trying to teach you, what God Himself is trying to press into you before you get to Romans 13. It's, it's preparatory work. And so you've got to hear what God has to say today, and it's really important. Let's read it together. In fact, I'm going to back up to verse 14, catch a bit of that context. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 17 through 21. So this is, this is what the Word of God says. The Apostle Paul writes this, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the Word of God. And it's an important word for us today. In fact, one commentator speaking on Romans 12 says this about this section. 
He said the grand concern is the right response to those who persecute, shatter the peace, and perpetuate evil. Romans 12 handles the question about how Christians should respond to evildoers. Obviously, obviously we don't struggle with this, right? This hasn't been an issue, especially in the last couple of years. No problems here. We probably just can skip right over this passage. The reality is, is that we, we all have the propensity to react wrongly at times, especially in the face of evil, especially when we ourselves have been wronged or harmed. The involuntary response of your heart and mine is revenge and retaliation. It's not something we have to be trained to do. It's not something we have to be taught. It's something that is inherent in us. There's, there's this sinful pride in our hearts that so easily responds to being harmed with revenge and retaliation. Just watch it in little kids that are playing, right? When, when one kid's toy gets taken, what happens? They smack them with the other toy. Adults have more sophisticated ways of smacking people around, but we do it just the same. And even if you don't do it physically, you and I both know that the temptation and the desire easily and quickly rises in our own hearts. There is a deep itch in humanity that wants, listen, that wants to be scratched in regards to revenge. So what do we do when we are wronged? Well, here... Here we are given a series of commands that deal with just this issue, and in many ways, this is focused on how the world wrongs us. We spend a lot of time focusing on on what we do as believers, how we respond to one another as believers, but here, Paul actually shifts our gaze towards how we respond to the world, those, those in the world who are apart from God who actually harm us or would seek to hurt us. But it's important to see that there is a a deep connection here between Paul's commands and the redemptive work of Christ. I want to remind you that this isn't just a list of do's and don'ts. Remember that Paul is appealing to us by the mercies of God. He's appealing to us by, by the basis of the gospel, and he's saying, listen, if you believe the gospel, then the gospel ought to manifest itself in certain ways. And as we saw last time we were in Romans chapter 12, in many ways, the gospel is trying to work itself out through us in order to make us look more like Jesus Christ. So you just can't look at this as do's and don'ts. You have to see this in light of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, there is a call here to imitate Christ. Here's what I need you to see right at the gates. And and you're going to see this repeatedly as we go through this. This is just basically holding up Christ in front of us and saying, I want to be like Jesus, I want to be like Jesus, I want to be like Jesus. So here's the question, how much do you want to be like Jesus? Don't answer that too quickly. Because this passage here is going to grade against every fiber of your being. And, and maybe you believe it in theory, but you and I both know that to put this into practice is so stinking hard. You want to wiggle out of these commands. 
Do you want to justify your rejection of them? You're going to want to dismiss your need for them. The question is, will you come under them and be transformed by them as your mind is renewed by the vision of Christ they present? This is a vision of the genuine love of Jesus Christ that is supposed to be operating the lives of believers. And I want to look at four aspects of this genuine love, and and the idea here is that this is a love that conquers. This is a love that overcomes. This is a love that meets evil, that stands up to the face of evil, but does so in the most unconventional of ways. It does so with love. And so, what we see first is that genuine love conquers evil by striving for present peace. Verses 17 and 18 remind us just in in very vivid terms of the response of a believer. Repay no one evil for evil. There's no exception clause there. Instead, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You see, the call there is to strive for peace in every area of your life, in every relationship in your life. Good and evil are contrasted throughout this whole passage. In fact, it's really strung through here. It's pulled through here like a thread all the way back in verse 9. You'll see that. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. And the passage even ends in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's kind of bookended. And let me just quickly point out the obvious here. There is a legitimate evil in this world. And it's not hard to see, is it? And we just had to pray for a a pastor and his family who are in Ukraine right now in the face of of absolute, atrocious, overt evil, and and it's a kind that, that we can't even fathom living in the Western world. And every time we think we're seeing evil here and now, listen, just remember, there are people right now whose houses are being bombed who are listening to gunshots. I mean, in the email he wrote, he said, like, he and his wife didn't sleep all night because all they could hear was bullets whizzing by, and they're looking at their children and, and praying to God that they're going to be safe. There is evil in this world, and it shouldn't be a shock to us. It shouldn't surprise us. And it's not wrong to call evil evil. In fact, it's necessary But you see, our problem is not usually an inability to diagnose evil. We're really actually good at that. Our problem is usually an unwillingness to respond properly to it. Worldly thinking says, uh, when someone punches you, punch them back twice as hard. That's what the flesh says. But God's Word says retaliation and revenge are absolutely forbidden to the followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about Jesus Christ. He Himself never hit back in either word or deed. And in spite of our inborn retaliatory tendencies, Jesus calls us instead to imitate Him. By the way, this does not prohibit, let me add a qualifier, it does not prohibit self-defense. It does not prohibit fleeing from evil. Those are all okay, scripturally speaking. They're all at times necessary, nor does this prohibit um, 
uh, the right ways of resisting and restraining evil. There are necessary ways and times that that is to be done, but here the point is that we are to respond to evil with good. Notice what he says, doing good, doing what is honorable in the sight of all. The word there, by the way, again, you can kind of make a little note in your Bible if you want, is that it's good. It's the same thing, doing good in the sight of all. Again, here's the theme, good and evil, good and evil, good and evil. Here he says, how do we respond to evil? With good. what is good or honorable in the sight of all, doing good to your enemy in such a way, here's what this means, that people around you would esteem your acts as something praiseworthy. He's not saying, by the way, that the world around you is the standard of good, that they determine what is ultimately good, but instead that there are some acts that even pagans recognize as honorable, and one of those acts is not taking revenge. This is God's common grace in the world that we live in. This world operates under natural or eternal laws. We're going to get to that next week when we look at Romans 13. How is it that, that governments that are pagan can actually operate in a way that is reflecting the character of God? Because God, as Paul has already said in Romans chapter 1 and even getting into Romans chapter 2, God has built this into the fabric of the world. There is this conscience that exists. That there is an obvious reality that there is a God who has ordered things and structured things in a certain way. So even, even the world around us, the pagan world that, that do not know God and love God, they can even often easily help see what is right and good and honorable. It's obvious. The idea here is that your, your, your public behavior is above criticism. By the way, this is a, a requirement a qualification for an elder, that they are thought well of by outsiders. In other words, that people can look at their life and they see things in their life that are clearly good and honorable and right. They respond to situations in the appropriate ways. So, how do I do this? I want to key on, on, on this phrase here. We kind of maybe skipped over it a little bit, but look back at verse 17. Look at the but there, okay? Repay no one from evil for evil, but, look at this, give thought. Isn't this interesting? Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. That little phrase there, good thought, or think, give thought, or think beforehand. In other words, this is a call to consider or to plan how you're going to respond when somebody does something evil towards you. Paul's saying, he's like, listen, don't be surprised when this happens, Okay? If you follow Jesus Christ, it's a guarantee. Even if you don't follow Jesus Christ, it's a guarantee. We live in a sinful, broken, fallen world where, where sinners are sinning and are going to keep sinning until Jesus returns. Expect that you are going to be hurt. Now listen, just don't, don't stay there. We're all like, yeah, I've been hurt. I know what it's like to be hurt. But here's the, here's the thing. You're supposed to actually pause right now and start thinking about when I'm hurt, when I am attacked, when somebody does evil towards me, what am I going to do to honor Christ in that moment? How am I going to respond to them in, a mo in that moment in a way that displays the love of Jesus Christ? How am I going to avoid losing my temper? How am I going to avoid speaking curses toward that person or cursing? 
how am I going to prevent evil from taking over my life? It's a big question. He's calling us to, to plan a good response, which is ironic because we are far better at planning bad responses. We're great at planning retaliation. We're great at thinking through what we want to do to somebody who's hurt us. When was the last time you thought about somebody who hurt you and thought, man, I really, I really want to do this really good thing for them because of what they've done to me? It's not natural, but it is spiritual. So right now, you need to put in some time thinking about how you will respond, planning how you will respond when you are treated in an evil way. Prepare yourself. Proactively prepare your heart. Look, can I just encourage you? It's not just, I'm going to say the right words, okay? It's not just, here's how I'm going to respond to the person who speaks to me. It's about your heart. It's about tilling the soil of your heart. It's making sure your heart is, is aligned with the heart of God, the heart of Jesus Christ. I want my words, I want my actions to reflect what's really going on in my heart. I love God, and I love, I love this person even though they're hurting me. They're, they're a person made in the image of God, and they are worthy, even though they're not giving it to me. They're worthy of honor and respect. They're worthy of compassion and kindness. They're worthy of mercy and grace. They're worthy of forgiveness. They're worthy, listen, of being treated the way that God treats us. What's the objective? Look at verse 18. These two verses are connected. The thought line is connected. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Again, the Bible assumes conflict. A lot of talk about conflict in the Bible, in the New Testament, in relation to the church. You will be tempted to not live at peace with all people. You will experience conflict in this world. You will have people disagree with you. Commentator Doug Moo says this about this passage. Listen carefully. He says this. In light of experiencing conflict in this world, he says, Paul does not want Christians to use the inevitability of tension with the world as an excuse for behavior that needlessly exacerbates that conflict or for a resignation that leads us not even to bother to seek to maintain a positive witness. Say, look, the, the tension we experience with this world, in this world, cannot be used as an excuse to destroy our witness. You've got to understand what's at stake here in Paul's mind. It, it's about displaying Christ. It's about the gospel. It's about people's souls. It's about salvation of sinners. That's what this is ultimately about. That is why we are not to be passive, but are to be actively looking to make peace. It's an active reality in the Christian life, and Jesus Himself taught this, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, He said. But this passage also tells us that that's not always possible. If possible, he says. In other words, sometimes it's not. You could have gone to great lengths, and that other person, that other party, absolutely refuses to make peace. 
You can get to the point in striving for peace with somebody where you've done all that you can, you've made every attempt, you've said everything you can, and the ball is ultimately in their court. There's nothing left for you to do. But you, you, you don't be the logjam. You don't be the one preventing peace from happening. You don't be the one to let your anger, your bitterness, your unforgiveness, your unwillingness, don't let those things be what prevents or hinders peace. As much as it depends on you, make sure you are not the problem. Make sure you are doing everything you can to strive for peace. And listen, I, this is the, the hope in this is like we just, we understand sometimes there are relationships and, and there are problems that are simply seemingly beyond repair. We want to be able to fix every broken relationship. We want to be able to fix every problem, but we can't. We can't heal every relationship. And this reminds us, doesn't it, that Jesus is the deliverer. We are not. Jesus is the redeemer. We are not. Jesus is the one who fixes what is broken. We are not. The question He is answering for us here, however, is this. How are we going to respond? How are we going to choose to respond when the conflict is knocking at our door? What will you be known for? What are you known for when you face conflict? And I don't even care if it's with the world. It could be in your own house. In fact, that's a great way to diagnose how you're doing with conflict, how you respond to those you love when you are wronged. Forget about those we, who don't love us and we, we don't love. We don't have that kind of intimate relationship. How do you respond to those who you say you love most when they wrong you? Are you known, listen, for vitriol? Are you known for vengeance? Are you known for violence? We are to be known for peace. That's what Jesus was known for. Look at 2 Corinthians 13, 11. I'll put it up on the screen for you. It says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Look at this. Look at this. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Yeah, but how is this possible? What about all the injustice in the world? What about all the evil in the world? What are we supposed to do? I don't have all the answers to that, but look what he says next. Genuine love conquers evil by trusting in righteous repayment. Verse 19 is so helpful. It's so freeing for the believer. Look at this. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I think some of us live out this, this verse in part right here. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. We forget about the last part of that. Says the Lord. It's not for you and me to give out. That's not our job. It's not our responsibility. But you see, the temptation is to respond to wrongs and evil as the judge, jury, and executioner. And it's very easy to baptize a sinful response by calling it righteous anger or zeal for the Lord. And you're like, ah, yeah, but look at Jesus. Jesus is my model. He flipped the tables over, and, and He made a whip, and, and I'm gonna, okay, leave it to Jesus. 
I don't, I don't trust myself that much, do you? Do, do you trust your heart? When you're like, man, I'm, I'm just righteously angry, can you legitimately say that, you think? I'm so, I just know that the times where I often believe that, if I take a closer look, part, oftentimes, listen, the reality is that's just a justification I'm trying to use because I'm just sinfully angry, selfishly angry, and I'm not saying we can't have righteous anger or righteous zeal. I'm just saying be careful, be careful going around throwing that phrase around. The truth is, is that it is so hard to not respond to sin with sin. It's so hard. And even when the Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. But this passage reminds us that it's not our job to execute justice on evil people. That's God's prerogative and He will visit His wrath on such people when He deems it right to do so. We are to, as it says very clearly here, leave it to the wrath of God. Another commentator, one of my favorites, Thomas Schreiner, he writes these words about this verse. He says, when believers are mistreated and abused and our rights are infringed upon, the desire for retaliation burns within us because we have been treated unjustly. We are not to give in, however, to the desire to set things right. Rather, we are to place the fate of our enemies firmly in God's hands, realizing that He will repay any injustice on the last day. Why leave it to God? Why, leave it to, why not us take vengeance? Why, why don't we become the hands of God, so to speak, in enacting justice in this world and carrying out God's judgment and vengeance in the world? Well, let me give you three quick reasons. First of all, because God is the most offended party when it comes to any sin. You want to know why you can leave it to God? This is good news. God is always the most offended party when it comes to sin. Listen, I, I, some of you, we've, some of us have been grievously sinned against. Some of us have been hurt deeply by sin. But do you realize, you know, you remember what David said? David said this when he had committed adultery and murder. He said, God, I've sinned against you and you alone. He's not saying he's not sinned against anybody else. He's saying this. Who, who was the primary one sinned against? It was God. It was a rebellion against God. It was a rejection of God's goodness. It was a failure to worship God as God. That's what all sin ultimately is. Secondly, though, listen to this. Here's why you can leave it to God, because He knows what they deserve. He knows everything they've ever done. He knows every sin they've ever committed. He knows the depths of their heart. He knows th their deepest sinful motivations. He knows everything perfectly, and as a result, He knows exactly what they deserve. You and I aren't very good at, at determining what people deserve. And the third reason is this, because He will deal rightly without fault. God will deal rightly without fault fault. He and He alone will ultimately give a righteous repayment. And this is freeing. This is so freeing because, so, listen, so many of us have lived, we've built this prison of our own making. We've li we're just living, even right now, in bitterness and, and anger. We're just we're controlled by it. Because we, we, we think that, that it's on us we, to, to take vengeance. And, and you, know, it's, you know, the old saying, like, bitterness is like drinking poison, hoping the other person's going to die. So we do to ourselves. 
And listen, one of the things that this verse reminds us of is that God cares more than you do about sin. God cares more than you do about injustice. And He's better at dealing with it than you are. He'll do it right. He'll do it perfectly. And our call is to instead follow the example of Jesus. Listen, Jesus is going to return one day with a sword coming out of His mouth, okay? There is judgment coming at the hands of our God. This is not an anti-judgment message. This is just, let's leave it where it belongs. There is a future day coming where Jesus will return and judge all sinners in sin. He will take care of it in full. And in the meantime, you want to know the Jesus we're supposed to be like? The one who died on a cross. The one who suffered. In fact, Peter, when he speaks about us being treated unjustly. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2. He holds up Christ as the example, and here's what he says. He said, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but, look at this, this is so good, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. We are not called to execute judgment. We are called to warn about the judgment to come. Can you hear that again? We are not called to execute judgment. We are called to warn about the judgment that is to come. The reason we can do that in the face of evil is because, listen, we have not been given the judgment we deserve. Do you realize that, church? And we skipped over a little word here that's so, so important. See what he calls us in the beginning of this verse, verse 19? Did you catch that one word? Just look at it. Beloved. Why did he put that there? Why did he put that right there? Because he knows how hard it is. He knows how hard it is to be treated with evil, to be wronged. And you know what he does? He's, he's, not only, he's not only sympathizing with us. And by the way, Paul, Paul knew when he wrote this, you know, Paul knows what it's like to be treated wrongly, to be harmed and hurt, especially for following Jesus. But he says, he says listen, beloved, and instantly in the mind of every believer reading this letter or hearing this letter read, you want to know what they're reminded of? They're reminded, oh my goodness, yes. I, I am a child of God. I am one that is loved by God. Can you just think about that for a second? In a moment where he says, you don't repay evil for evil, here's what he's saying. Remember, remember that you are loved by God. Remember that God didn't repay you for the evil you deserved. Do, do you remember that God saw you and he saved you while you were an enemy at the very time you were an evildoer at the very time you were shaking your fist in God's face at the very time you refused to worship him as God the Bible says God loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to die for you you are loved by God and what a sweet reminder, right? Like, listen, if, if in your heart you want people to face the judgment of God, you are far, far, far away from the heart of God. Listen, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We should not be wanting judgment and the wrath of God on anyone because we know, listen, we know that we deserved it as much as anyone. And God has been so kind to us. 
we ought to be praying and pleading with God. Like, when we're harmed, yes, it hurts, but man, like, we ought to be pleading, God, God, you've been so gracious to me. You have loved me. You have saved me when I didn't deserve it. God, I pray that you would extend to them the very same love that you have shown me. And again, that's so hard to do. We were deserving his righteous repayment for our sin. But I want you to consider this again. He took that certificate of debt and he nailed it to the cross. He would have been righteous to repay us for our evil with eternal wrath and judgment, but instead he repaid us with his own righteousness. He treated his son as if his son was us. Jesus absorbed the wrath. Jesus took the judgment. And what do we get in return? We get the very righteousness of Jesus. Some of you here today, listen, you, you don't know Jesus. You're not saved, and, and the wrath of God abides on you right now. The, if you died today, you would face this God who says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, I will repay. You will stand before this God. The book of, of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says this, it's appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. Listen, and my heart for you today, listen, regardless of what you have done, regardless how you have sinned against God, I don't care how great it is, how wicked you have been, listen, there is a God who will judge you unless you turn to him and repent and believe in Jesus Christ. But if you turn today, if you see that he loved you so much that he would die for you, that he would pay for those sins, he would take your judgment, and that he would give you his own righteousness, he rose from the grave, that he would conquer sin and death so that you could be made righteous like his perfect son, listen, then you, you can have life today, and you will never face the just vengeance and wrath of God. Beloved, leave it to God. Leave it to God. And the way we can leave it to God is by living in a way that can lead people to God. Notice this next. Genuine love conquers evil by responding with convicting compassion. To the contrary, he says, verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. This is how we bless those who persecute us. We're shown here our personal responsibility to love and serve our enemy according to their needs and to genuinely seek their highest good. This is, this is staggering. This is, this, this is the Christian ethic that Jesus lived out. And he says here that in so doing, if we, we repay evil with good, if we respond with compassion and kindness to somebody's evil towards us, in so doing, it says, we will heap burning coals on their head. By the way, he, he's actually grabbing here from the Old Testament. He's, he's reaching back to Proverbs chapter 25. And he gives us this interesting metaphor. There's a little bit of confusion over what this means. I'll, I'll give my best shot at explaining what I think he's talking about, th this idea of heaping burning coals on somebody's head. Now, burning coals is often a sign of judgment in the Scriptures. 
And I think what's being communicated here, a lot of commentators point to the reality that what he's pointing to is is an Egyptian practice where when somebody was in sin or in, in shame publicly, their shame was known, they would put a basket of burning coals on their head and walk around as a symbol of their shame. And it seems like what what he is doing here is he's explaining that we can live in such a way as to actually produce genuine shame and conviction in the heart of the person who's actually sinned against us and perpetrated evil towards us. We can actually respond in a way that can produce deep, deep conviction and ultimately, hopefully, conversion. At the close of the Second World War, One chaplain tells of when Japanese forces captured numerous allied soldiers. The captured soldiers spent a number of years in a prison of war camp where they endured difficult living conditions and torture from their captors. As the end of the war neared, a number of wounded Japanese soldiers wandered through the jungle and they found themselves at the prisoner of war camp. Initially, the allied prisoners were commanded not to render aid to the enemy. But the Christian soldiers decided to do otherwise. They responded that they did not see an enemy, a persecutor, but rather human beings created in the image of God. Those who were hungry, thirsty, and in need of care. So, in that moment, these Christians, they rendered care to their enemies. The call here is to love those who hate us. The reason is so that through our loving compassion, they may experience genuine conviction. We ought to be thoughtful about how we respond because you never know what God may do in the heart of even a a wicked, evil person. The coals of fire that we can heap on top of someone, they're intended to heal, not to hurt. They're intended to win, not to alienate. In fact, they're, they're intended to shame them into repentance. When we respond to sin with sin, we are simply demonstrating that we care more about ourselves than we do about the souls of others. But when we respond with compassion, listen, we are showing them Jesus who did the ultimate good by dying for us while we were still His enemies. We're showing them the love of Christ. The love of Christ that conquers the hardest hearts, the greatest sin, the worst enemies. Your compassion, loved ones, listen, your compassion could be the very thing God uses to bring about genuine conviction and conversion in the heart of even the most vile sinner. Lastly, notice this, genuine love conquers evil by triumphing through ruling righteousness. This is such an interesting way to close. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And what he reminds us of here, listen, this is, this is important to take note of. Evil can actually triumph over us. Evil can actually gain the upper hand. We can become like the very enemy we decry. 
If you do the thing your enemy is doing, you will become the enemy yourself. You follow that? And and this theme is is an important one to understand, so let me illustrate it for you. Um, By arguably the greatest movie or trilogy of movies ever created, The Lord of the Rings. And if you disagree with that, you can leave right now. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'll still love you. But, but if you're familiar with the books or, or the movies, then one of the things that you know is this, that at the heart of the movie, there's this evil ring of power, right, that's been created by this evil Lord. He's infused this ring with all of his evil, wicked power. And here's what happens in, in the story. You can use the ring, but, but there's a problem if you do. If you use the evil Lord's ring to fight against him, you will become an evil Lord yourself. Some of you, that just unlocked the whole movie. You didn't realize that, and so you're welcome. (laughs) But interestingly, the only way to defeat this evil Lord is through sacrifice, suffering, and humility. Sound familiar? If you respond like the enemy, you will become the enemy. Evil will triumph over you. But listen, there's some other ways that evil can triumph over us. And I, I want to just really quickly hit some of these because this, this may be you here, you here today. Evil is overcoming you. You are being ruled by it. You see, here's how evil can overcome us even as believers. We can dwell on the evil. We can become so obsessed with the evil replaying it on a loop in our mind. We can't get off of it. We can't stop talking about it. It just, it literally takes over our life. It's overcome us. You can let it dominate your thoughts and control your feelings so that it squeezes out any ounce of joy you have left in the Christian life. Or you can live in fear of evil resigned to its power in this world and consigning yourself to the life of a victim. Just like, oh, it's just the evil is there and we're never going to overcome it and it's always going to be crushing us and you can let it control you and cause you to live in fear and woe is me. You can let it lead you to despair or depression or simply, listen, live in anger or bitterness. We can determine, listen, that we are worthless. Some of us, this may be you here today, you you were so sinned against. You were treated as if you were nothing. You were a piece of garbage, and you've begun to believe it. This is how evil can triumph over you. You've begun to believe it, believe that you are worthless, that you are deserving of mistreatment. But instead of being overcome by evil... We are called to overcome evil with, look at it, look at it. Somebody help me out. With what? With good. We triumph, listen believers, we triumph not through ridicule, not through retaliation, not through revenge, and not through resignation. We triumph through righteousness. A righteousness that rules us because Christ rules us. And what we are proving when we do that, what we are proclaiming when we respond to evil with good, listen, we are proclaiming and we are proving that Christ is Lord. He rules us. 
Ultimately, when we do what is good in the face of evil, we are displaying the love of Christ who did what was good for us in the face of great evil towards Him. Remember how Paul began in Romans 12? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Listen to this. What is good and acceptable and perfect. Jesus embodied this idea of being a living sacrifice. And if we are to be conformed to Christ's image, then we too must be living sacrifices. Even in the face of evil, God calls us to conquer evil with good. The good of giving a Christ-like gospel love to our enemies so that we might participate in the salvation of some, so that we might be sanctified, so that we might be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. No matter what, listen, no matter what, we should pray for and bless our enemies, not curse them or repay their evil with evil. The same love of Christ we received when we were God's enemies is the same love we now get to show to others. We love our enemies in the hope that they too will one day come to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord, that one day they too will be, listen, a a testimony of His saving power and grace. We hope and pray that, that the greatest enemies of God will be made a trophy of His grace, amen? One more to display His glory, one more to display His power. One more salvation to display His wisdom. One more undeserving sinner to sing the praises of His glorious grace for all eternity with all of the undeserving sinners saved only by His grace.